And we've been going around and around with the topic of false teachers and false prophets, which makes us aware that there is a battle going on in the church. The battle is over the truth of God. Uh, it matters what we think about what the Lord says. It matters what we think about ourselves and about sin. And there are those who are self-proclaimed prophets and teachers who are exalting themselves and trying to glorify themselves. And Peter has taken up in this passage in Second Peter sort of an undertaking to make us aware of false prophets, first of all. Our passage began in, uh, that we've been looking at false prophets, began in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1. And I'm not going to go back and read it, but from verse 1 to the middle part of verse 3, Peter has been giving us a warning about false prophets and false teachers, telling us that there is such a thing as false prophets among the people that will introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master. Well, then after he talks about the warning, then he jumps into the subject of the warfare that God wages against the false prophets, his wrath is poured out, and that begins the middle part of verse 3, and it goes all the way down to verse 10. It talks about the judgment of God from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And if you remember in that passage, that uh, Peter gives several examples of God's wrath being poured out on judgment, as well as God's ability to preserve righteous people like Lot in the middle of that judgment. And so we, we spent quite a bit of time looking at that. Now tonight we come to a new passage, but actually there's a sense in which he's carrying the theme along, so to speak. And that is a theme of false prophets. And I guess we could call it the evaluation, if you will, of false teachers or false prophets as he gets into describing something of them. I have at this point taken that text, that passage, which goes from verse 10 all the way down to verse 22. And I've divided it up. The first section, which we will start on tonight, has to do with their pride, false prophets, their pride. The second part, or further on after, Further on, from verse 13 to 14, is their passion, then their pursuit, then their priority, and then their paradox. I may change those titles as I get into the text. That's what sort of seems like to me that you want to see. But it's important that we look at them and we see what they're like. They're wicked people. They're evil people. They're people that are in rebellion against the Lord. Um, over and over again, Peter uses the term revile uh, regarding them. And that term is related to the subject of blasphemy. And they are those who blaspheme the Lord, and uh, it brings a swift judgment on them. I've been looking and thinking a lot about the Christian life, about our walk with the Lord, and about submission to him and cooperating with his word and his truth. I think I, I shared with you out of Romans 8 the other day um, where Paul is talking about the, the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, that God's law is a standard for our, 
our living for Christ, and it tells us how to live in a way that pleases him in exercising biblical wisdom, and that that law um, it can be fulfilled in us, but not by walking in the flesh, but by walking in the spirit. And that the spirit, the Holy Spirit in the realm of the spirit is the arena in which we can function as a believer and grow because we're not bound by cranking out the law. If we try to crank out the law and obey the law and gain eternal life by keeping the law, we're going to die because we can't do it. And so we want to do it by keeping in step um, by the spirit. He says there are those who are according to the flesh, set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those according to the, to the who are according to the spirit, according those who are, those who are according to the flesh, set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit, for the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. So that if we live according to the flesh, if we live to please the flesh, we are killing ourselves, even though uh, we may enjoy the things of the flesh, they, they are attracted to me. I've told you that uh, I identify with Demas because he loved the world, and I love the world. I love the things of the world, but I don't pursue them. I try not to pursue them. I try not to let them dominate my life, even though they do sometimes dominate my life and my thoughts. I realize that pursuing those things produces death, um, but pursuing the things of the Spirit produces life. Paul says in Galatians, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you reap. It sows to the spirit, will reap life. And so to the flesh, you're going to reap death. Uh, that's just the way it is. Why does he say be not deceived? Because here is a place where we are deceived. We think we can, we can live according to the flesh. We can seek to please the flesh. But at the same time, reap a spiritual harvest. You can't do that. So sin deceives us. That's that way, Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us that the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, so we are deceived. Sin will kill us. Uh, I wrote down the saying, and I don't know where I got it from, but sin always deceives us. It'll take you where further than you want to go. Sin will leave you where you do not want to be. It will change you into what you do not want to be. It will rob you of what you do not want to lose and will cost you more than you're willing to pay. Sin leave you down to death. So it's true, and we see that probably illustrated very well in false prophets as we look at them and we see their life and we see the illustrations of their lives and what they are like. Um, they are vile and they are wicked. And uh, it starts out in our text, verse 10, the middle part of verse 10, of saying this. It says, they're daring and self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a railing judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they, do, where they have no knowledge, will end the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. What are they like? He starts out by saying they're daring and self-willed. They do not tremble when they are when they revile angelic majesties. Daring 
these false teachers, when he uses the word daring, he's talking about kind of a defiant, reckless, um, prideful life. Word daring has the idea of being audacious, um, contemptuous of law, contemptuous of things that are serious and decorum, overstepping the bounds. That's what they are. They, they do that. These false teachers, they have no uh, concern for what is really just and right. They step over the bounds. They are arrogant. I remember as a young believer, new Christian, uh, I grew up in the town of Wake Forest, and this was after I got back my and uh, Lane and I lived there for a while, and I knew one of the students was at the seminary. Back then, the seminary of Wake Forest was real liberal. It was very, uh, it was the Southern Baptist Seminary, but it was very liberal. And um, Lane had been working with a group of girls, three of them, young teenage girls, uh, and made a, a trio out of it. They were really good. They, in fact, they were so good and they harmonized so well together that they were invited to sing on television, WRFG. Do you remember Jesse Helms? Uh, when he was a senator, one time he was in charge of the radio station there in Raleigh, WRAL, and he heard him, and he invited them over, and they had him on TV, and they sang, and were really very good, and Lane worked with them. They were daughters of professors in the seminary, but they told her of stories of, of uh, BTU, which was Baptist Training Union, a program that uh, Baptists have for working with the kids um, in the evening, there were some teachers there from the seminary that were denying the vicarious death of Jesus and atonement and other things, really denying the deity of Christ. And I sat in the Sunday school class when I first got back to Germany, and I remember the teachers saying that they thought that the church was too absorbed with Christology and not enough uh, absorbed with theology, as if, as if you can uh, somehow, you need to turn your focus from Christ to God as if they were different somehow that there was a distinguishing you don't it, it, I knew it was wrong I just didn't know that how to answer me because I was new coming in I and uh, so anyway this while I was there one of the guys that went to that seminary was a guy that Elaine had known at Word of Life named Glenn and uh, supposedly he was a Christian and so I asked him I said Glenn how is it that the seminary here can de deny the vicarious suffering of the Lord and the vicarious death of the deity of Christ like that and still be think that they are training pastors to go out into the churches and teach the Bible. He said, well, Peter, do you believe that God reveals himself in nature? I said, yeah, yes, he does reveal himself in nature. Then the Bible is not God's only revelation that he reveals himself in nature as well. And what we have done is we have learned that the Bible was God's revelation for man in his infancy, but as man became more sophisticated and learned more and more about his surroundings, he was able to handle a more mature understanding of God. And so what he's learned about God in nature supersedes what he has been learning or what he thought he knew in the Bible and that he was, when he was a child, you know, God communicated with the Bible, but as an adult in nature, he's, he's learning about how I really created the world through evolution and other stuff like that. I didn't really, I knew it was wrong, 
But I didn't really have a real good answer for him at that time. I can answer that now, but I couldn't answer it real, real well then. But the thing is that these people can say things like that so casually uh, and not even bat an eye as if, as if they were talking about whether you want a Big Mac or whether you want a quarter pounder and discuss the two just with it, no more seriousness than that and, and just as casual as whatever. And I'm thinking, that's a pretty serious thought to be saying that now you have something to supersede God's word, and that is nature. Actually, nature is very general. It doesn't, it's not specific. The Bible is specific. The Bible is clear. Nature is very general. You can't look at nature and understand the love of God and understand the sacrifice of Calvary and the forgiveness of sin. But you can go to the Bible and do that. The Bible is very clear. And so... We don't, we don't replace the Bible with nature. We just understand that God displays his handiwork. You, you, you can see a picture of the greatness of God by looking at creation. But if you want the specifics, you go to the scriptures. And we don't want to treat it fast and loose. And that's what he's saying is that they are daring. They are arrogant. They are self-willed. Um, kind of says that they are their own authority. It's a way of saying that. Um, I guess everybody likes to have an authority to base something on. I, I listened to the radio one time, and I heard one guy was preacher was talking about how when he was in college, uh, he would debate sometimes with some professors or some of the students about things that he would, if he needed a verse of scripture to contradict it, he didn't have one. He'd make one up. <laughs> that doesn't go very well. So they say, "Can you show it to me in the Bible?" But that's what he did. He would make one up. But you can't do that. We're not our own authority. We can't. We can't just. We can't hold ourselves up by our own bootstraps or become our own authority. You see what I'm saying? And that's that's what these these uh, false teachers try to do. They are they're arrogant. They're self-willed. They are um, their own authority. And he illustrates that as he goes on in this text. They do not tremble. They do not dread. They do not fear when they uh, revile or they, the word revile there means actually related to blasphemy. They do not tremble. They do not dread. They do not fear. They're not bothered by uh, when they talk against angelic majesties or when they blaspheme against angelic majesties. And I think what he's saying there is because they're so prideful, so arrogant that they can deal with these this area talking about angels and stuff like that. Like the charis, there's, there's a brand of charismatic movement that's kind of extreme. They bind Satan and do all this other kind of thing and cast out, supposedly cast out. So that's kind of scary because they don't have authority to do that. And yet you have people thinking that they can bind Satan and, and do all these kinds of weird things like that. And this, this, is, this is a realm we, we have, in Christ, we're protected from those things. And the access that we have to understand the supernatural realm is the scriptures. But the scriptures tell us that we need to be, to be respectful, if you will, and respect the power that is displayed in these angelic beings and to just leave it alone. We don't want to go playing around with the Ouija board. We don't want to go playing around with the occult. We don't want to do that. That's more than you can handle. Real quick, you can get in trouble. So you want to leave that kind of stuff alone. Here are some that just play around in these things 
Um, and they just don't think anything about it. They, they uh, actually kind of look down their noses at this uh, idea of angelic beings and powers. And, um, and we know from Scripture that Paul talks about um, principalities and powers and rulers, which are realms of authority within the spiritual realm of the angelic community. We know that God has, has instituted, I mean, he is well organized, not like me, not running by the seat of his pants. He's well organized. He has everything lined up, and there is a chain of command, not only in the Trinity, but in angelic beings and stuff like that. You can see that. You can come to Revelation, and you can see that there are some angels that are angels that are in charge of worshiping God and uh, conducting, the, if you will, the, the approach, uh, some that say holy, 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 and are guarding that holiness of God. There are some angels that seem to be in charge of the earth, and they are watching the four corners, the four winds of the earth, and they do these kinds of things, and they oversee these. He is well organized. I mean, you can tell that by looking at the stars and the universe and the galaxies and how he's organized creation, and we know that. And so when we move into the angelic realm, into the realm of the supernatural, we need to be respectful of that. And by that, I don't mean we worship angels and worship demons, but we need to be respectful. We need to understand that. Understand that this is, this is something that we don't want to play around with. We respect the Lord. Um, John, on several occasions in Revelation, when angels were talking to him in the, the vision that he had, uh, he would, once or twice, he would sail down before the angel, and the angel said, get up, John, don't worship me, you worship God. I'm a creature like yourself. And uh, that happened also to Samson, the angel. And uh, so this is, this is, um, this is a, an important area that what he's saying here is that these guys are prideful, they're arrogant, they're self-willed, they, they uh, push their weight around as if they were the boss, um, and but they're not, and that they need to be respectful. We, on the other hand, have been privileged by by the writers of Hebrews four sixteen that tells us that we can draw near to God uh, boldly. I think King James says boldly comes boldly before the throne of grace. We have that privilege to do that. Now, think about what that means when it says that we can come boldly before the throne of grace. To come boldly like that means not flippantly, not casually, not dancing around as if we were in a garden. I, I've given the illustration, and you probably remember me saying, but it's a good one, I think. If you go to a flower garden or rose garden or whatever, of course they have rose garden, and or somebody's taking you, like the Biltmore State, they have the beautiful gardens up there, and you, you are taken through a tour of the rose garden, you don't have to walk boldly through that garden. You can enjoy it, and you can participate in the flowers and enjoy the beauty of them, smell them, and so on and so forth. There's nothing, there's no reason to be bold, just do it and enjoy it. But, if the owner of the garden had a couple of ferocious lions or tigers that patrol that garden to protect it, and now you are invited to come through there, and he says, now don't worry about them because they won't bother you, I've told them. Now you can walk through the garden, but it makes sense that you're walking boldly because you're walking in a place where there is real potential danger. And yet, the owner of the garden has said you'll be safe 
but it's still not a place that you want to just play around with. It is a place where there's potential danger. And that's the same thing. The throne of the universe is a place, it really is the most dangerous place we can be, really. We're, we'll be safer standing unprotected three feet from the face of the sun than we would standing in the presence of God unprotected from his holiness. Because that he is, he is it's blisteringly devastating to us. We're sinners. <clears throat> One sin is enough to condemn us forever. And we are, we've sinned from the day we were born. We were born sin. And we are just devastated. And yet, because of God's infinite mercy and grace, we are in Christ and we are protected by him and by his mercy and by his, his salvation and the shedding of his blood and the payment of our sins so that we can come boldly to a place that otherwise would be very devastating. So we are, we are told to come boldly to a place. These false teachers treat these things lightly. They, they don't understand the greatness of it. And I'm, I'm not going to share some of the things that Pete told me, but he has some friends when he was at school, and some of those guys did some very, had some very arrogant things to say about the approach of God and other things like that. And it just it makes me tremble to think about how some people can treat things of, of such a serious nature so casually and so flippantly. So um, it's it's a uh, it's, it's I guess indicative of false prophets and false teachers that they do this. He goes on in in uh, to talk about these angelic beings. He says, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a railing judgment against. And before the Lord, this is an illustration that kind of illustrate that sphere of authority that's, that should be respected. So that angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a, a railing or blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> what? Right. Yeah. Yeah, those guys. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Word of life. Uh, Paul Rubar, his son, I don't know his name. We'll say Johnny. I don't I don't know his name. Johnny was walking across the island one day. And he was all of a sudden one of the guys at staff there saw him and he was hiding, so he yelled out. Johnny! And he hid behind the big little blue bar. Johnny! Stop looking around here like you're in the third time he said it, he stopped. He said, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Oh, Samuel. Anyway, now that we're not interrupted anymore. Um, these angels, they are the angels set that respect by they don't bring railing accusation that comes from Jude 6 against the Lord either. But these false teachers, he says, they are like unreasoning animals. That means they're alive, but they have no moral sense, no sense of morality, no sense of propriety. They're alive. But they're really dead. They're really dead. They're like dead men walking. They're born as creatures of instinct. 
to be captured, uh, captured for destruction, really captured and killed, um, reviling where they have no knowledge, blaspheming where they do not have any understanding, of which they are ignorant. They don't have a grasp of that. They are, they are ignorant of the things that they are playing around with. And he goes on to say that they will, in the destruction of those creatures, and those creatures, like those creatures are destroyed, they will be destroyed. Um, literally, literally translated, they shall, they shall in their destroying themselves be destroyed. They, in their seeking to destroy and to pervert things, will themselves be destroyed and be perverted. They're suffering wrong as the images of doing wrong. Peter is telling us that these false teachers are receiving unrighteousness as the inheritance or the heir of their unrighteousness. Their unrighteousness has been sowing seeds of destruction, self-will, arrogance, blasphemy, and they will themselves inherit that. So this is a picture here, if you will, of their pride. Um, they're, they're presumptuous, they're overstepping the bounds and what they are like. Um, Let me give you an illustration. I, when I try to think of an illustration of pride, probably one of the best illustrations that I can come up with is that of Daniel in Daniel chapter 4. And if you remember in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, one day, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, I'm just going to read several verses out of it because of time. But um, one day, Nebuchadnezzar called in. Daniel was placed in charge of the of the Magi, all of the cult, the whole community. He was in charge of them. And that community was a community that was the educated community, the scribes. They kept the books, they kept the records, they kept the library. Daniel was in charge of them. And I believe he used them to write a major portion of the book of Daniel. I think he used it. In fact, part of the, the record that he gives sounds like he's dictating some things for them, but they're writing it down. But one day, Daniel 4. Nebuchadnezzar calls that group of scribes to him, and he sits down and he says, I want to tell you what God has done for you. And he begins to tell him, he said, I, I uh, had this dream about this tree, and it was a picture of me, and I couldn't understand it, didn't know what it was, so I called Daniel in after I had that dream, and I asked Daniel, and uh, Daniel said that the God of heaven has exalted you to a high place, and you're getting very prideful and arrogant. And so he's just going to humble you and let you know that you're not the boss. And so in Daniel chapter 4, you see a picture of the pride of Nebuchadnezzar. I'll read the beginning in verse 30. The king reflected and said later on, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by my might and my power and for the glory of my majesty? And while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying to King Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it has been declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. And just like that, he became a basket case. Alzheimer's, whatever you want to call it, his, his mind was gone. You will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field and you will be given grass to eat by cattle in seven periods of time until seven periods of time pass over you, until you recognize that the Most High, 
is ruler over the entire realm of mankind, and he will bestow it on whoever he wishes. It doesn't matter about your election. It doesn't matter who you vote for. It doesn't matter who you like and who you dislike. It doesn't matter what the news says. He's going to put an office who you want to put. He's in charge. He's the boss, not you. You didn't know that. So he's going to show you. So that's what he did. And he became a basket case. And he went around eating like that. And Joel lifted up his eyes. You know the story. He saw, he realized what was going on. And he praised and exalted the God of heaven and the Lord of the universe. And he, he, from that point on, he was a changed man. And he wanted to give his testimony, which is a sign of salvation. When a person is saved, when they're changed and, and God opens their heart, they can't wait to tell how vile they were and messed up they were before they met Christ and the difference that Christ has made in their lives and changed them. So that, that, that testimony he's made and is very clear in the way he words it. And he's the one that's instigating and instituting this testimony. It's not that Daniel brought him down and said, oh, let's do it. But so he, it was initiated by him. The next chapter is a different person. It's the, it's the person of Belshazzar, the Belshazzar's feast. And Belshazzar uh, is not the son, but the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And I don't know what got into him, but is it is the case so often with these false teachers, they get arrogant, they get prideful, they got to get on their high horse. And all of a sudden, they like to, to throw their weight around and make fun of things that are holy and things that should be taken seriously. And so they, they sort of treat it lightly. And so here's this guy. He had a big feast, and he called for all of his, his, his entourage and everything, and he got the idea, what we're going to do is we're going to take the holy vessels of the temple of the God of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach, this fearful God, we're going to take these vessels, and we're going to use them to party. We're going to have our drinking. We're going to party and have a good time. So that's what he did. And in the middle of that, all of a sudden, a hand appeared out of nowhere and started writing on the wall behind him. He saw it. And the, te the text says that he was scared death. It actually just says his, his knees were knocked, knocked together and his face grew pale. I mean, it is true. Uh, you don't want, my, my dad used to, when I was a kid, we'd have like a little tugging match. Sometimes you think my finger say, say uncle, say uncle, say uncle. And finally I'd say, uncle, uncle, and he'd let me go. You don't want to have a little contest like that with God because he'll win every time. His bell is finding out real quick that God is not something to play with. He thought he could play games with these vessels, but all of a sudden now, in the moment of reality, the snap of the fingers, the tide is turned, and there's a hand writing on the wall. It's in real time, and he is scared to death. He doesn't know what to do, so he calls for Daniel, and Daniel, he actually calls for the, the, the wise men, and they can't answer it. And finally, I think it's his wife, mother, some woman there says, well, there was a prophet, there was a guy, one of the exiles from Judah is up here that Daniel, he can tell me. So he calls him in, asks him, are you Daniel? Yes, I am. He says, can you tell me this dream and I'll make you third in the kingdom. And so um, he, Daniel says this, this is Daniel chapter 5, verses 17 to 30. Daniel answered and said before this guy Belshazzar, you can keep your gifts for yourself or you can give your rewards to somebody else. However, 
I will read the inscription to the king and will make the interpretation known to him. Big difference between Daniel's interpretation and these Chaldeans who come up there who didn't have a way of doing that. They are not, they, they, we just don't know. We have no idea. They can't answer it now because they know Daniel can correct them. And so here they are. And here's, here's what Daniel said. He said, O king, the most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Now, actually, let me just interrupt there. Uh, it's the word that actually would be better translated your forefather, because Nebuchadnezzar without his father would have been grandfather. And the word could be, it is translated, it has the idea of your, of your predecessor, your, your forefather. And so he granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your forefather. Because of the grandeur when he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed. Whomever he wished, he spared alive. Whomever he wished, he elevated. Whomever he wished, he humbled. Now, here's a guy who has no bounds. He can do, I mean, you can't, you can't get much more independent than that. No accountability. He can do what he wants to do. And, uh, but it says, but when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly. He was deposed from his royal throne, and his glory was taken away from him. This powerful man, who had all this strength, all this power, and all this sovereignty, just like that, he was taken away by God. God can do it. He can do it. He was also driven away from mankind, and his heart was made like that of beasts. His dwelling place was with the wild donkeys and was given grass to eat like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. Yet you, his grandson, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all of this. So here he is. This tells us that he knew about this. He knew about this God. He knew about this display. And yet somehow he got this wild hair thinking he was going to play these games and drink all the have this big feast and do it. It's just a mild form of being disrespectful, being arrogant in the presence of God. For some reason, um, false teachers and false prophets like to do that. They like to make fun of the things that are serious before God. And they like to do that. They, they kind of, they're teaching class, they like to make little jokes about creation, about God, and about Jesus, and so on and so forth. And that's what he was doing. And he said, but you knew about this, and you didn't humble your heart, even though you knew all of this. For you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. They have brought... And they have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your nobles, your wives, your concubines, have been drinking wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver, of bronze, of iron, of wood, and stone, and have and stone, which you do, which do not see or hear or understand, but the God in whose hand your life breath. And all your ways stands, you have not glorified. So this God who holds you, gives you your next breath, your heartbeat, the one who's 
who has done all these things, you've not glorified him. You've been arrogant. You've, you've tried to belittle him. Then the hand was sent from him, and the inscription of the hand was written out. And now this is the inscription that is written out. Mini, mini, tekel, you farson. And here's the interpretation of the message to you. Mini, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tarkle, you have been weighed in the scales and found deficient. Um, Rhesus, Dr. Euphesus, um, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and, Pers and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave orders and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler of the kingdom. That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. That very same night. So the point is, and I, we're done here, I guess this is where we'll stop. The point is, here are these false teachers. They're very arrogant. They're very prideful. That's what he says about them. They, the pride, what does the Bible say? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you up. You try to exalt yourself up, you try to lift yourself up, put yourself on a pedestal, it's going to crumble. You're in competition with the God of the universe. God's not going to be, not going to share his glory with somebody else. So these, these false teachers, self will, arrogant, prideful, uh, exalting themselves, not trembling before these uh, angelic majesties and not respecting the authority that God has placed in, in mind, exalt themselves, but they're down. They're going to fall, and that's what he's talking about. They're prideful and arrogant. Nebuchadnezzar uh, is a good illustration of how God's able to do that. Belshazzar is. Any comments before we close? Father, thank you for the lesson. I thank you that the throne of the universe is occupied. And it is true that uh, sometimes I function as if I were the sovereign. I make decisions as if the decisions were mine to make and that I'm in charge when I know better. I thank you for your mercy and grace. I thank you for your patience. And just like you ex extended your patience and your mercy and your grace and the apostle when he was very arrogant and boasting about the fact that even though these other disciples deny you, I would never do that. Never me. Yet he did Three times and did it with cursing. Um, but you told him that you had prayed for him and that, that he would be, after he has turned around, turned around to use this lesson he's learned to strengthen his brothers and give them courage. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your patience with me. I, as I said, I like. Like demons so often attracted to things in the world that, and they are attracted, but they're not the things that produce life. If I live for the world, I know it's going to produce death. But if we live for you, that produces, as you said, life and peace. And that's what we want. We want to please you. We want to honor you. I want to do that. I pray that you'll help us here at Blue Ridge to honor you, to glorify your name, to be serious about the things that you've entrusted to us. And I pray your blessing upon this week. Pray for the people that are not here that normally are. I know they're out on vacation. That would be especially a good time for them. A restful time and a spiritually rejuvenating time.
And I pray these things in Jesus' name, with thanksgiving. Amen.